Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your BFF, your consigliere, your advocate, your ally, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, Michael Ian Black. It is a delight to share this novel with you. I am recording later, I think, in the day part than I have ever recorded previously. I mean, it is late here in the wilds of Connecticut. It's got to be, my gosh, 9.30 in the p.m. Pajamas are on. The candelabras are all lit here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, casting their flickering light upon me. I am bathed in its golden hues. I look gorgeous. Jack-Jack, my little shitty rat dog, is nowhere to be found. Um, Actually, I know where he is. I just don't want his company. But he is separated from me by an impermeable barrier known as a wall. He can't get through it because he is so, so dumb and so short. He cannot operate the door lever to enter the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. So I am all alone here in the quietude of evening. Perhaps some of you listen at night, huddled under your blankets, earphones on, earbuds in, listening to my melodious voice, lull you to sleep, and then make you giggle uncontrollably because, my Lord, am I hilarious. And we need a little laughter right now because things are in tumult in the world of Sue Bridehead and Jude Fawley. Sue has just asked her new husband, if he would be willing to allow her to leave their marriage and go live with Jude. You get that? She's like, "Uh, I like you and I love you, but I'm not in love with you. Does that make sense, Richard? I like like you as a friend, but I don't think I can live with you. And I just kind of want to live with my cousin. Is that weird? And he's like, yeah, it's really freaking weird. And she's like, Ew. 
sorry. And he's like, do you love him? And she's like, no, obviously I don't love him, but she does. She does love him. And we are fully grasping now the depths of her emotions. And, you know, kudos to her for finally coming clean, both to Richard and to herself. And in a sense to Jude, although he does not know that she has asked if she can live with him. And so uh, in the the end of the last episode, they were teaching school together as they do. She's with the girls. He's with the boys. He passed her a little, little note, you know, the way you do at school. And he was like, hey, were you serious? And she was, she wrote back and she was like, LOL. But she was like, she did not write LOL. She was like, yeah, I was serious. So now we pick up the story. They're still at school. Phillotson looked more disturbed than before. And the meeting place of his brows twitched again. He's twitching. He's having a little fit about this, which I like. You know, he's palpitating. He's having the beginnings of a seizure about this. In 10 minutes, he called up the child he had just sent to her and dispatched another missive. And it says, God knows I don't want to thwart you in any reasonable way. My whole thought is to make you comfortable and happy. But I cannot agree to such a preposterous notion as you're going to live with your lover. You would lose everybody's respect and regard, and so should I. I mean, yeah, it's a tough thing, you know, when you're like, hey, is it okay if we have an open marriage? And he's like, that wasn't part of the deal. So you're going to have to be okay when I say, nah, that's not okay. Nah. After an interval, a similar part was enacted in the classroom and an answer came. She says, I know you mean my good, but I don't want to be respectable. To produce human development in its richest diversity, to quote your Humboldt, and I don't know who Humboldt is, but she's quoting him, is to my mind far above respectability. No doubt my tastes are low, in your view, hopelessly low. If you won't let me go to him, will you grant me this one request? Allow me to live in your house in a separate way. To this, he returned no answer. She wrote again, I know what you think, but can you not have pity on me? I beg you to. I implore you to be merciful. I would not ask if I were not almost compelled by what I can't bear. And what she's saying is what she can't bear is him. (laughs) ultimately that's what she's saying and that's you know that's not what you want to hear uh, from your wife no poor woman has ever wished more than i that eve had not fallen so that as the primitive christians believed some harmless mode of vegetation might have peopled paradise. But I won't trifle. Be kind to me, even though I have not been kind to you. I will go away, go abroad, anywhere, and never trouble you. So she's basically saying, I'm going to pull an Arabella. Now, if you were in that situation, dear listener, if if your spouse came to you and said the same thing, what would you do? I mean, I don't see what choice you have. Because what do you say? I mean, you say no, and then you're living with somebody who hates you, who resents you, 
who cannot bear to even look at your face. If you say yes, then at least you have a chance at happiness. You have no chance at happiness if the situation remains unresolved. And the only way to resolve it, I guess, is to let your your partner go. I mean, what's that saying about love? If you love something, set it free. If it goes to Australia, it will get eaten by a dingo. That's the expression, I believe. Nearly an hour passed, and then he returned an answer. What do you think he's going to say? I think he's going to say go. Phillotson is an eminently kind person in the end. He's been nothing but kind throughout this whole book. He's a good guy. I think he's going to say go. Let's see what he says. I do not wish to pain you. How well you know I don't. Give me a little time. I am disposed to agree to your last request. I called it. I mean, he's disposed to agree. He hasn't agreed, but I called it. One line from her. Thank you from my heart, Richard. I do not deserve your kindness. All day, Phillotson bent a dazed regard upon her through the glazed partition, and he felt as lonely as when he had not known her. Aww. But he was as good as his word and consented to her living apart in the house. At first, when they met at meals, she had seemed more composed under the new arrangement, but the irksomeness of their position worked on her temperament, and the fibers of her nature seemed strained like harp strings. She talked vaguely and indiscriminately to prevent his talking pertinently. All right, so he agreed, but he agreed to the worst possible solution, which is like, yeah, we'll just live here together as, what, flatmates? As they say, in jolly old England. Um, you can see why I do not get work as an actor. He agreed to her request, but like the worst version of it, which is like, well, yeah, we'll just hang out here together. And that is such... That's, that's bad on him because really what he's saying is I'm too embarrassed to let you go. I'm too embarrassed about what everybody else will think. I'm too tied to convention to do anything but keep up appearances. And that's a shame. But that's what this whole book is about. Ultimately, it's it's it. And, you know, that's what all of England is about. <laughs> Just keeping up appearances. Um, all right, let's take a break. Word from our sponsors. Welcome back to Obscure. You guys are ready to start chapter four. Sure, you are. You are. Uh, I, I, I just I can sense it over the airwaves here. Um, there are no airwaves. It's a podcast. Phillotson was sitting up late, as was often his custom, trying to get together the materials for his long neglected hobby of Roman antiquities. <laughs> this is my favorite thing about Phillotson. He, he collects Roman antiquities. It's just kind of an aside about him. I mean, it speaks to everything, right? I mean, it speaks to everybody being kind of mired in the past, except for Sue. Everybody. 
looking backwards, except for Sue, who is anticipating the modern age. For the first time since reviving the subject, he felt a return of his old interest in it. He forgot time and place, and when he remembered himself and ascended to rest, it was nearly two o'clock. His preoccupation was such that, though he now slept on the other side of the house, he mechanically went to the room that he and his wife had occupied when he first became a tenant of Old Grove Place, which, since his differences with Sue, had been hers exclusively. He entered and unconsciously began to undress. There was a cry from the bed and a quick movement. Before the schoolmaster had realized where he was, he perceived Sue starting up half awake, staring wildly, and springing out upon the floor on the side away from him, which was towards the window. This was somewhat hidden by the canopy of the bedstead, and in a moment he heard her flinging up the sash. Before he had thought that she meant to do more than get air... What? 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 I'm about to read what. She had mounted upon the sill and leapt out. She disappeared in the darkness and he heard her fall below. I, I mean, I laughed. <laughs> I shouldn't. <laughs> she just jumped out of a window because he came into the room. I mean, I don't think she, I mean, she couldn't have hurt herself that badly. Let's just, let's just assume that that is the case. She was in bed. He came in. She jumped out of the window. (laughs) That's, that's, that's extreme, even for Sue. It's not her first escape, right? She escaped from her training school. Now she is escaping from her house. But let's make sure that she's okay before before there's too much merriment in my voice. If she has hurt herself, I'm going to feel terribly. I mean, more than like a, you know, a twisted ankle or so. I'm going to feel bad. Phillotson, horrified, ran downstairs, striking himself sharply against the newel in his haste. Opening the heavy door, he ascended the two or three steps to the level of the ground, and there on the gravel before him lay a white heap. Okay, that's not good. That's really not good, guys. Phillotson seized it in his arms and bringing Sue into the hall, seated her on a chair where he gazed at her by the flapping light of the candle, which he had set down in the draft on the bottom stair. Draft, drop, drought, draft, draft, D-R-A-U-G-H-T. She had certainly not broken her neck. She looked at him with eyes that seemed not to take him in, and though not particularly large in general, they appeared so now. She pressed her side and rubbed her arm as if conscious of pain, then stood up, averting her face in evident distress at his gaze. So she didn't die. All right. So now we can, we can, can we all just have a laugh? Can we have a laugh? at the fact that she jumped out of a window. It's funny. (laughs) I'm like the worst person in the world. He says, thank God you are not killed, though it's not for want of trying. Not much hurt, I hope. 
Her fall, in fact, had not been a serious one, probably owing to the lowness of the old brooms and to the high level of the ground without. Beyond a scraped elbow and a blow in the side, she had apparently incurred little harm. I was asleep, I think, she began, her pale face still turned away from him, and something frightened me, a terrible dream. I thought I saw you. The actual circumstances seemed to come back to her, and she was silent, because she did see him, and he was kind of getting undressed. You guys know Mike Birbiglia, right? He jumped out of a window once, didn't kill him. I mean, he, he built a whole career on the fact that he jumped out of a La Quinta window. Uh, so, you know, look, if we're going to make light out of jumping out of windows, we should probably talk to Mike about it. I'm reading Jude the Obscure, the book, out loud. Uh-huh commenting on it as I go. You've probably heard about it in all the, all the trades. The well, pre- brilliant, brilliant idea. I uh, have to confess I have not read Judy Obscure, so, so I'm, I'm the lay person. Yes. Yes. Well, every, nobody has read Judy Obscure. Your expertise is pertinent to a section of the book where uh, the woman that Jude is in love with, Sue Bridehead, has married a man that she does not love. And it has really kind of shattered her psyche. She has asked if she can sleep apart from her husband. He has agreed. And at a certain uh, point after a few months of this, the husband absentmindedly in the middle of the night goes into her room while she's sleeping. And she, of course... Uh, immediately jumps out the window. And I thought, who do I know? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Who do I know? If anybody. Yeah. That has jumped out of a window while sleeping. And then, and then I thought, oh, I do know somebody who has done that. And I thought, and I thought maybe I would, I would ask you a little bit about it. You're probably sick to death of talking about it, but whatever. I think, I think a celebrity like yourself has at, at your beck and call, um, <laughs> people of all expertise. And, and I think that I, I feel honored that my expertise is that I once jumped out a window or I should say through a window sleepwalking. So I'd be, I'd be thrilled to explain it. Do you want me to talk you through what happened? Sure. Well, I, what, I certainly know, like. but, 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 a, but a quick summary for our listeners who maybe don't know. Okay, so uh, about, I think it's 2005 or so, I was in Walla Walla, Washington. I just performed a handful of college shows back to back to back. I was exhausted. I was overtired. I was later diagnosed with what's called REM behavior disorder, which is a rare sleepwalking disorder. I had a dream there was a guided missile headed towards my room, and I, I, I decided to jump uh, out through out my window for the sake of the platoon that was assembled in my mind in, in the room. And uh, there's important detail. One is that the, the window was closed. And two, I jumped through the window like the Hulk. And, and, uh, and uh, so I jumped through the window and I smashed through it. I land on the front lawn and I, I hit the ground and I, I, I stand up and I keep running. And I'm running. And I'm slowly realizing it's at that moment I'm realizing I'm on the front lawn of La Quinta Inn in Walla Walla, Washington, in my underwear bleeding. And right. I thought, oh no. And 
in that moment, this is the most surprising thing about the story, even whatever, 15 years, almost 15 years later. Um, in that moment, I was I was relieved that I hadn't been hit by the missile. <laughs> that that was honestly my next question because yeah. the, the, because there must be a moment when you go oh uh, where, where you're like the bad news is I jumped straight out of my window but on the other hand there's no hellfire missile coming for me. Well, it's a little you know in retrospect I have so much distance from it now. It's a little bit like that Simpsons sequence that I recall where someone gets into an ambulance and then the ambulance like crashes into something and lights on fire. (laughs) If I recall, the next thing you did was explain the situation to the front desk clerk. Yes, that's correct. And um, he's very unfazed by it. Um, And so I asked him where the hospital was. And so I... And then I drove myself. Wow. He just goes, all right. And then I drove myself to the hospital. And so then were you also like, oh, I also think I may have left my room key in the room when I jumped out of the window? (laughs) I actually did have to have that conversation. I came back. I don't think that this is written anywhere, but I I paid for the window. Well, yeah, you should. Yeah, I guess you have to, right? I mean, once you jump through it, I feel like that's your responsibility, right? I mean, what does a window at La Quinta even cost? It was like $240. I mean, it's, I think it was a cheap, a cheaply made window, which is why I was able to jump through it. I've spoken to engineers who pointed out that, that, that actually you really can't jump through almost any modern windows. Right, because theoretically what should have happened is you should have bounced off any good window. Well, they say that the, the way – like if you're staying at like a Westin hotel in a big city, let's say, um, you try to jump through the window. It's as though you're trying to jump through a wall. Right. Well, I want to reassure you that this sort of thing happens to other people, at least in literary fiction. Sure. It's a good device. I mean, it real, Michael, I mean, it really – Jumping through that window really made my career. Look, you would have been a success either way. This definitely helped. <laughs> Thanks for including me in the podcast. Thanks for and, participating. Uh, absolutely. And I will uh, figure you in, Michael. Bye, well. Mike. Writer, comedian, actor, Mike Birbiglia listeners. You can learn more about his sleepwalking and everything else he is working on at his website, burbigs.com. Okay, so we left off in the book, of course, with Sue having just flung herself out of a window. I will read on. Her cloak was hanging at the back of the door, and the wretched Phillotson flung it round her. Shall I help you upstairs? He asked drearily, for the significance of all this sickened him of himself and of everything. No, thank you, Richard. I am very little hurt. I can walk. You ought to lock your door, he mechanically said, as if lecturing in school. Then no one could intrude, even by accident. And then she says, (laughs) rather cruelly, I think, I have tried. It won't lock. All the doors are out of order. The aspect of things was not improved by her admission. Oh, really? She ascended the stairs slowly, the waving light 
of the candles shining on her, just the way the candles here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library are shining on me. Phillotson did not approach her or attempt to ascend himself till he heard her enter her room. Then he fastened up the front door and returning sat down on the lower stairs, holding the newel with one hand and bowing his face into the other. Thus he remained for a long, long time, a pitiable object enough to one who had seen him, till, raising his head and sighing a sigh which seemed to say that the business of his life must be carried on, whether he had a wife or no, he took the candle and went upstairs to his lonely room on the other side of the landing. I'm going to try to reenact that sigh right now. This is what that sigh sounds like. I think I nailed it. No further incident touching the matter between them occurred till the following evening when immediately school was over. Phillotson walked out of Shaston, saying he required no tea and not informing Sue where he was going. He descended from the town level by a steep road in a northwesterly direction and continued to move downwards till the soil changed from its white dryness to a tough brown clay. He was now on the low alluvial bends. And then here's a little quote from a poem. Where Duncliff is the traveler's mark and Cloty Stowers are rolling dark. Cloty Stowers? Cloty, C-L-O-T-Y. More than once he looked back in the increasing obscurity of evening. Against the sky was Shaston, dimly visible. On the gray-topped height of Palador, as pale day wore away. That's another quote from a poem. The new-lit lights from its windows burnt with a steady shine as if watching him, one of which windows was his own. Above it, he could just discern the pinnacled tower of Trinity Church, the air down here, tempered by the thick, damp bed of tenacious clay, was not as it had been above, but soft and relaxing, so that when he had walked a mile or two, he was obliged to wipe his face with his handkerchief. Leaving Duncliff Hill on the left, he proceeded without hesitation through the shade, as a man goes on night or day, in a district over which he has played as a boy. He had walked altogether about four and a half miles, quoting the poem again, where Stour receives her strength from six clear fountains fed. When he crossed a tributary of the Stour and reached Ledenton, a little town of three or four thousand inhabitants, where he went on to the boys' school and knocked at the door of the master's residence. A boy pupil teacher opened it, and to Phillotson's inquiry if Mr. Gillingham was at home, replied that he was, going at once off to his own house and leaving Phillotson to find his way in as he could. He discovered his friend putting away some books from which he had been giving evening lessons. The light of the paraffin lamp fell on Phillotson's face, pale and wretched by contrast with his friends, who had a cool, practical look. 
They had been schoolmates in boyhood and fellow students at Wintonchester Training College many years before this time. Glad to see you, Dick, but you don't look well. Nothing the matter. Phillotson advanced without replying, and Gillingham closed the cupboard and pulled up beside his visitor. Why, you haven't been here, let me see, since you were married. I called, you know, but you were out, and upon my word, it is such a climb after dark that I've been waiting till the days are longer before lumpering up again. I'm glad you didn't wait, however. You remember Shaston is kind of isolated from the world. You can you can barely get there at all. You have to helicopter in, and since they don't have helicopters, you have to either walk or take like a little a, a horse or something. I don't know. It's hard to get there. It's just, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's like, it's like Narnia kind of, you, you have to go through the wardrobe to get there. So Gillingham is saying, well, you know, or Gillingham, what's his name? Well, whatever his name is. Uh, he's saying, you know, I just, it's just, it's, it's a pain in the ass to get to where you are. And I came once you weren't there. I came back. I was, you know, I'm glad you came though. How you doing? You, you look like shit. The well-trained and even proficient masters, they occasionally used a dialect word of their boyhood to each other in private. I've come, George, to explain to you my reasons for taking a step that I'm about to take, so that you, at least, will understand my motives if other people question them anywhen, as they may, indeed, certainly will. But anything is better than the present condition of things. God forbid that you should ever have such an experience as mine. Sit down. You don't mean anything wrong between you and Mrs. Phillotson. I do. My wretched state is that I have a wife I love who not only does not love me, but... But... Well, I won't say... I know her feeling I should prefer hatred from her. Shh! And the sad part of it is that she is not so much to blame as I. She was a pupil teacher under me, as you know, and I took advantage of her inexperience and told her out for walks and got her to agree to a long engagement before she well knew her own mind. Afterwards, she saw somebody else, but she blindly fulfilled her engagement. Holy shit. Uh, I mean, this is a rather extraordinary thing for Thomas Hardy to be writing in 1895. Phillotson is saying, I had the power in the relationship and I took advantage of my position to get this chick to marry me. I mean, me too, Phillotson. Me too. He's saying all the things that men of our age so rarely say. And he's saying, and I have suffered for it. Obviously, she is suffering worse than I am. No crimes were committed. I did not take advantage of her in an untoward way. But I did take advantage of her own of her inexperience and naivete, and I should not have done it. I'm to blame, not her. He's owning it. And Hardy 
to his credit, has painted Phillotson, and I just said it, as nothing but a kind man. But Hardy is acknowledging that Phillotson done fuck up. That Phillotson done fucked up. We understand why and how. We understand that he was a lonely schoolmaster. We understand that he did not harm her in any purposeful way. But he knows and Hardy knows, and he's saying, by extension, all men know that when you take advantage of your position of power in this way, you are doing wrong. It's a, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a hell of a thing to say in 1895, is it not? At times, it feels like it's a hell of a thing to say in 2018, 19. What year is this? I'm going to be honest. Right now, in this moment, I honestly don't know what year it is. I think it's 2019, and I'm honestly going to check. Yeah, it's 2019. I, that's the first time that has ever happened to me. I suspect it won't be the last. <laughs> uh, well, we need a break. Clearly, I need a break. All right, back in a minute on Obscure. And we're back. Mr. Phillotson has basically just said, it's my fault, right? What, what happened between him and Sue, which means Hardy is accepting some fault on the part of men too, right? Not all men, he said. Not all men, he repeated. But, you know, all men. All right, I'll read on. Uh, Phillotson is talking to his friend, Mr. Gillingham. Afterwards, she saw somebody else, but she blindly fulfilled her engagement. Loving the other? Loving the other? Asks his friend. Yes, with a curious, tender solicitude seemingly, though her exact feeling for him is a riddle to me and to him too, I think, possibly to herself. Well, yeah, exactly. It's a riddle to everybody, her exact feeling for him. But we think now... She loves him. She is one of the oddest creatures I ever met. However, I have been struck with these two facts. The extraordinary sympathy or similarity between the pair. He is her cousin, which perhaps accounts for some of it. They seem to be one person split in two. And with her unconquerable aversion to myself as a husband, even though she may like me as a friend, tis too much to bear longer. She has conscientiously struggled against it, but to no purpose. I cannot bear it. I cannot. I can't answer her arguments. She has read ten times as much as I. Her intellect sparkles like diamond, while mine smolders like brown paper. She's one too many for me. She'll get over it good now. <laughs> That's good advice from his friend. It's like, yeah, she'll be fine. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> she'll get over it. Never. Right. Richard, right, never. It is, but I won't go into it now. There are reasons why she never will. 
At last, she calmly and firmly asked if she might leave me and go to him. The climax came last night, when owing to my entering her room by accident, she jumped out of window. So strong was her dread of me. She pretended it was a dream, but that was to soothe me. Now when a woman jumps out of window without caring whether she breaks her neck or no, she's not to be mistaken. And this being the case, I have come to a conclusion that it is wrong to so torture a fellow creature any longer and I won't be the inhuman wretch to do it cost what it may. What? You'll let her go and with her lover. Whom with is her matter? I shall let her go. With him, certainly, if she wishes. I know I may be wrong. I know I can't logically or religiously defend my concession to such a wish of hers or harmonize it with the doctrines I was brought up in. Only I know one thing. Something within me tells me I am doing wrong in refusing her. I, like other men, profess to hold that if a husband gets a so-called preposterous request from his wife, the only course that can possibly be regarded as right and proper and honorable in him is to refuse it and put her virtuously under lock and key and murder her lover, perhaps. But is that essentially right and proper and honorable? Or is it contemptibly mean and selfish? I don't profess to decide. I simply am going to act by instinct and let principles take care of themselves. If a person who has blindly walked into a quagmire cries for help, I am inclined to give it if possible. But... You see, there's the question of neighbors and society. What will happen if everybody... Oh, I'm not going to be a philosopher any longer. I only see what's under my eyes. Well, I don't agree with your instinct, Dick, said Gillingham gravely. I am quite amazed to tell the truth that such a sedate, plodding fellow as you should have entertained such a craze for a moment. You said when I called that she was puzzling and peculiar. I think you are. Have you ever stood before a woman whom you know to be intrinsically a good woman while she has pleaded for release, been the man she has knelt to and implored indulgence of? I am thankful to say I haven't. Then I don't think you are in a position to give an opinion. I have been that man. And it makes all the difference in the world. If one has any manliness or chivalry in him. I had not the remotest idea, living apart from women as I have done for so many years, that merely taking a woman to church and putting a ring upon her finger could by any possibility involve one in such a daily, continuous tragedy as that now shared by her and me. Well, I could admit some excuse for letting her leave you, provided she kept to herself, but to go attended by a cavalier, that makes a difference. Not a bit. 
Suppose, as I believe, she would rather endure her present misery than be made to promise to keep apart from him. All that is a question for herself. It is not the same thing at all as the treachery of living on with a husband and playing him false. However, she has not distinctly implied living with him as wife, though I think she means to. And to the best of my understanding, it is not an ignoble, merely animal feeling between the two. That is the worst of it, because it makes me think their affection will be enduring. I did not mean to confess to you that in the first jealous weeks of my marriage, before I had come to my right mind, I hid myself in the school one evening when they were together there, and I heard what they said. Oh, so he was there when they were talking to each other. I am ashamed of it now, though I suppose I was only exercising a legal right. I found from their manner that an extraordinary affinity or sympathy entered into their attachment, which somehow took away all flavor of grossness. Their supreme desire is to be together, to share each other's emotions and fancies and dreams. I'm going to keep reading a little bit. We're going long, but, you know, I, I feel like I have to finish this scene. I mean, Phillotson is pouring out his heart here, and he is kind and good, and he does see things the way they are, and, and the wool has been pulled from his eyes now, because he is seeing that convention has failed. He is seeing that marriage itself at least his marriage, but Hardy, Hardy may be making the argument that all marriage is like this, uh, that marriage itself is a sham. I don't know if he's really making that argument. And if he is, please don't tell Martha, um, to share each other's emotions and fancies and dreams platonic. Well, no, Shellian would be nearer to it. They remind me of, what are their names? Leon and Sithna, also of Paul and Virginia a little. The more I reflect, the more entirely I am on their side. So I don't know who he's talking about. I don't feel like looking it up, but, you know, complicated relationships, two people in love who maybe, you know, they're, they're not, it's not quite physical, but maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it's going to get there. But if people did as you want to do, there'd be a general domestic disintegration. The family would no longer be the social unit. Yes, I am all abroad, I suppose, said Phyllis, and sadly, I was never a very bright reasoner, you remember, and yet I don't see why the woman and the children should not be the union without the man. Jeez, I mean, he's really going out there. I mean... So this book was banned, apparently, Jude the Obscure. And for the first, you know, X number hundred of pages, I was like, why was this banned? You know, it's it's fairly, uh, I wouldn't say banal, but, you know, nothing that would suggest that there should be any controversy at all about it. But when when we're listening to Phillotson talk now, he's presenting some radical ideas, radical for the time and radical in a sense for our time. He's saying a family doesn't need a father, essentially. He's saying if the woman and the children are a unit, which they will be by their nature, they don't need the mans in the house. Now, look, I grew up in a divorced household. 
it's hard for me to argue with that to a certain respect to, 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 to a full respect. And, you know, Murphy Brown proved to us, you know, single woman can raise a kid. If Murphy Brown can do it, we all can do it. But it's such, it's such a radical notion here in 1895. And it remains a radical notion to a certain extent. Um, and I think the conventions of our times suggest that, in fact, a fuller family unit is preferable, however that family is composed. And it can be headed by a single parent. But a two-parent household is a better household. It just is. Whether it be man and woman, two men, two women, whatever it is, more adults in a child's life is generally preferable. <sighs> by the Lord, Harry matriarchy <laughs> he's saying my god man do you mean that women should be in charge of things my god man are you fully sober man what are you saying wars will be abolished lactating women squirting the milk everywhere my god man what will happen if we have matriarchy does she say all this too Oh no, she little thinks I have outsued Sue in this all in the last 12 hours. It will upset all received opinion hereabout. Good God, what will Shaston say? I don't say that it won't. I don't know. I don't know. As I say, I am only a feeler, not a reasoner. Now, said Gillingham, let us take it quietly and have something to drink over it. He went under the stairs and produced a bottle of cider wine, on which they drank a rummer each. I think you are rafted and not yourself, he continued. Do go back and make up your mind to put up with a few whims, but keep her. I hear on all sides that she's a charming young thing. Ah, yes, that's the bitterness of it. Well, I won't stay. I have a long walk ahead of me. Gillingham accompanied his friend a mile on his way, and at parting expressed his hope that this consultation, singular as its subject was, would be the renewal of their old comradeship. Stick to her, were his last words, flung into the darkness after Phillotson, from which his friend answered, I I, I mean, this, I'm ending now, but I mean, this, oh, I mean, increasingly, I am left a flutter after each episode of Obscure because the deeper we get into it now, and we seem to be racing towards the climax now after our own plodding walk through Jude's early life and first marriage and all of that, but we seem to be racing towards something. And I don't know what that is, because as you know, I have not read this book before and will probably never read it again. But we are racing towards something. We are racing towards a new formulation of the way Sue and Jude and Richard, I guess, live their lives. And it, and it is coming apace. And it is remarkable to me, as I have said, that Hardy is laying all this out there now for us. And I, who condemned him so severely earlier in this podcast, I, who said he does not like women because there were no sympathetic uh, examples of their gender in the early parts of this book. I, 
I doff my hat. I have no choice but to doff my hat to Thomas Hardy, who is seeing things with a clarity that is really remarkable for his time. I, I mean, I have such warm feelings for this book. I can't even believe it. I'm almost annoyed how much I love this book. But here we are. You know, I, I came into it a doubter. I leave it a convert. No, I mean, we're not done. Maybe it'll all turn again. But um, I'm leaving this episode a convert. I just have such warm feelings for it. And for all of you. Maybe it's the glow of the candles. I don't know. Flickering upon my face. Dripping their wax upon my things. And when I say my things, I mean that I am uh, depanted and, and it's falling on my thighs and sizzling in a rather pleasant way. So I'm going to enjoy that. And I hope all of you have enjoyed this remarkable episode of Obscure. Until next time, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and subscribe, won't you, in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you do not miss one exciting episode of Jude the Obscure. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedron. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com. From the wilds of Connecticut, I'm Michael Ian Black. This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que no está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher. Apple Podcasts. Or wherever you listen. Hola, Nezea. Spanish Aki Presents.